This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. This is powered by digital media. Today's sponsor is Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. A Videoblock subscription gets you unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. Everything is 100% royalty-free. Cancel your subscription and keep what you download and maintain your rights forever. Get your yearly subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. I'm here with Jim Miller, who is the author of several books. The one we're going to talk about today mostly is Powerhouse. What's Powerhouse's full title, Jim? The Untold Story of Hollywood's Creative Artist Agency. About CAA, which is an acronym I bet a bunch of the folks listening to this podcast know, but it's not a household name. The two previous books you did, you do, you do these great oral histories, right? Sort of signature style oral histories. You did one on Saturday Night Live, then you did one on ESPN. Those are big brand names that I think everyone in the U.S. and probably most of the world has heard of. CAA is, is really an industry term, industry name. Why spend years of your life writing about CAA? Well, that's a really good question. No, I'm just kidding. I think it was for that very reason. You know, SNL is a show. ESPN is a network. And CAA, even though it's not as well known, is this universe it's this content universe. And I like the idea of, you know, kind of getting underneath the surface of this iceberg and exploring it and telling people why they should know about it. In fact, CA has more of an impact on their lives than SNL and ESPN put together. Because, just to be clear, right? So the CA does a bunch of different things, especially now. But their main job is they attach a writer or director, or sometimes they do all this stuff together. And uh, a studio will pay them, and then they get a piece of, of that artist's Payday, right? That's the, the core of the business. But they're, they're talent agents. That's the core of the business. Right. I mean, the interesting thing is SNL was born in the 70s mm-hmm. and still very much with us. ESPN was born in the 70s, still very much with us, and so was CA. So in a way, there's it's kind of like a trilogy, if you want to think about it, in terms of you know content and effects on the culture. And in response to your question, CA, at its core, it started as a TV representation business. Then it moved into movies. Then it moved into music. Uh, then it moved into marketing and investment banking. And then it moved into sports. And I think that one of the things that people are finding interesting about the modern CA is just how connected it is to so many parts of our life. I mean, when you walk into Chipotle for lunch, CA is doing the marketing. So CA does a bunch of stuff. In Hollywood for a time, I don't know, 10, 20-year period, maybe, they were sort of the dominant player in Hollywood. If you were getting something done, they were touching it. I don't think that's the case anymore now. Um, I think you would make that same argument. They're the rival WME is, is bigger than them. Other agencies are on their heels. Beyond the fact that CA used to be really big and touch everything, was there something about them that changed the way Hollywood or the entertainment business worked? Yes, I think that they absolutely transformed the whole mechanism of Hollywood. And it started probably in the early 80s. And it lasted, well, I would say the first era ended in 1995 when Michael Ovitz, Ron Meyer, and Bill Haber, three of the founding partners, left. And then there was a second generation. The second generation... Make no mistake about it, CA has offices in China, India, Switzerland, various places around the country, and other parts of the world. It is still 
very good at what it does. But I think to your point earlier, it's facing the most competitive landscape it's ever faced. But it still is responsible for engineering the big transformation in the business. So, I mean, if there was an era where if you knew anything about Hollywood, you would have heard the term CAA. Maybe if you didn't pay any attention to it at all, you might still have heard the term. If you had an idea of what a Hollywood agent looked like, it probably looked like a CAA person, a guy in a suit and a tie. And there's a, you have this huge cast of characters. You talk to almost everyone in the business. And I, I should take an aside here and say that I, normally I would do as much prep as possible for an interview like this. In this case, I couldn't read the whole book. You guys wouldn't let me have the whole thing in advance. I had to go to your publisher and sit in a glass room and pour over for Awful a couple hours. You guys are treating this like a state secret. Awful publishers. Well, the books are always embargoed, so it's a pain in the neck. Are people freaked apologies. out about this book? Are they, are they worried that you got the stuff they don't want exposed? I think that there is a level of concern and curiosity you know one of the interesting things about ca which i was really into was the fact that they don't like to talk about themselves they like to talk about their clients and in fact one of the essential strands of dna for an agent is you know you got to like put your client first right well it's it's this classic thing right where they they act as if they have no ego and it's all about the client and they always make sure the client's name is first but of course they want their name in the press and of course these guys have enormous egos i mean a lot of your book is about Oh, yeah. Ego-driven stuff, but, right? But the point is, though, that they're not used to talking about it. And, right. you know, many of the agents I spoke to had never really spoken to a journalist on the record before. And so I think those people are particularly curious and a little apprehensive yeah. about that. And I think also, you know, look, once you have somebody kind of digging into a company for three years, there are things that this happened with Saturday Night Live and this happened with ESPN. There are things that you stumble upon and you think, oh, well, you know. It's probably not good for business, but it's you know. out. Um, I want to talk about some of those books later too. Let me let me go back to the to Powerhouse. It's I think fundamentally, from what I could tell, this book is re- you've got a cast of characters again, hundreds of people you talk to, but it seems like fundamentally this book is about two people, Mike Ovitz and Ron Meyer, two of the co-founders, and even when they're not at the agency anymore, sort of their ghost is either hanging over the agency, or in some cases, the guys who are still at the agency are, are sort of fighting against. In, in this case, Ovitz. And they're kind of a yin-yang character, right? Ovitz is sort of the more public figure, more brash, and Meyer's the one that less people know. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit about each of those guys? Sure. Mike Ovitz and Ron Meyer met at William Morris in the early 70s. Mike, and William Morris used to be the dominant agency. It was king of the hill. It was, you know, the, the standard bearer. And it was incredibly successful. And they and three other... William Morris agents at the time, Bill Haber, Roland Perkins, and Mike Rosenfeld, all left William Morris to form CA. But very quickly it emerged that Mike Ovitz, who was the youngest and least experienced of the five, had a real drive and passion and determination and very, very, very aggressive. And so what happened was this dynamic got created between Mike and Ron and that's no disrespect to Bill Haver, who's actually a, a really, really smart, one of the best TV agents in the history of the business. But Mike and Ron were the two central figures in CA's history for the first 20 years. And as you said, cast a shadow over the next 20. And I think that, you know, in many ways, they're, they're very different people. They um, were very, very close. Ovitz in the book talks a lot about the fact that he considered Ron a brother. And... Yet they had very, very different styles. In some ways, and I said this at the beginning of the book, if there were two Mike Ovitzes, 
we would never have had to see it. Because you can't have two alpha guys. You just can't. And if there were two Rons, it wouldn't have been the same CA. So let's stick with the positive for a second because good news sometimes has a tendency to travel slow. The, the pairing of these guys, the yin and yang of it, was really effective for the company. Ovitz was externally focused and he was, you know, he had unbridled enthusiasm for playing the power game in Hollywood and creating mergers between studios and advising foreign companies and just insatiable appetite for more and more and more. And was really the public face of the company. Yes. And Ron, though, was meanwhile taking care of a ton of clients. And when you think about Ron Meyer and his client list, it's unbelievable because it was, I mean, it was Cher and Meryl Streep and Madonna and Jessica Lange and Whoopi Goldberg and Jane Fonda. And I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And he was also doing something else, which is he was mentoring younger agents about the value of an agent in a client's life and the way to comport yourself. And so I think that that combination between the two of them was very successful. And then it wasn't. Right. And they have a breakup and, and it's some of the juiciest stuff in your book is about sort of this, it's sort of a slow motion car wreck, right? Where at one point Ron Meyer is trying to help Ovitz get a job running uh, Universal, right? Uh, and then Ovitz sort of blows the deal in the end. And then Edgar Bronfman Jr., who's just bought Universal, ends up giving it to Ron Meyer, who insists that that's not what he was trying to engineer. Ovitz is very hurt. And then there's these great anecdotes throughout your book, again, the parts that I've read, where these guys continue to sort of like fight and squabble. There's a great story about them fighting over a piece of Malibu real estate. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That Meyer thought we'll he was going to buy. We'll it's readers, great. It's yeah. great. It's great. Um, it's, uh, I was curious when I was reading this because I guess it depends on the attitude you bring towards the book. You can read a lot of this stuff and you've got the nature of what you do, right? As you write down verbatim what they said. And usually you're not adding any commentary there. And so you can bring to it what you want. A lot of this stuff makes these guys look like just craven assholes. But I think you like them fundamentally. Is it? Am I taking that away correctly? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, look, I think that... Like they're, they're constantly fighting over perceived slights or I, I only got paid a million dollars instead of this amount of money. And if you, if you look at it from an outside, you might think, boy, these guys are, are pretty petty and, and, and vindictive and venal. But I think you respect them for at least the, for the business they built. Yeah, you know, Ron was not, that was never Ron's game. I can't think of one moment when Ron was thinking about money in terms of his own money. And in fact, he was very, very generous with colleagues in the agency and all sorts of other people outside and never even lending his name to his efforts. You know, he just wanted to be anonymous. But I think that, look, Michael Ovitz's relationship with money is a function of it's a very, very easy way to keep score. And Michael Ovitz loves to win. And so he was very, very good at it. This is very often what you hear from very wealthy, very successful, usually men saying, I don't really care about the money, except in the way that it allows me to keep score. Well, you know, people forget that for at least two years, Michael Ovitz was the number one investment banker in the United States. I I mean, you don't think of a Hollywood agent, you know, being that. But he was engineering, you know, deals with Japanese companies taking over studios and merging and Credit Lyonnais in France and everything else. So his swath was wide. And I think that, you know, sometimes it was very easy for people to see him as what he was considered for many years, which is the most powerful person in Hollywood. There was no doubt 
about that. And after uh, he leaves CAA, he goes to Disney for a year and change. He's supposed to sort of be co-president or co-CEO with Michael Eisner. That doesn't work out. Um, a lot of people cheer his failure there. He goes then to run a, a management group that's kind of competing with CAA, and the CAA guys are, are rooting against him at that point. Can you sum up sort of what he did to engender so much enmity in Hollywood over a long period of time? Well, first of all, I think that when you're as powerful as he was, uh, I think there's a lot of envy. There's a lot of you wind up on the losing end of deals because he's able to throw his weight around and the right. agency's weight around. So there were people who felt burned or taken advantage of or they just felt humiliated because, I mean, look, he won a lot of battles and he was very, very successful. So, you know, it's one of those things where success has in some ways many enemies. And uh, so there were people that were, after his kind of like phenomenal ride, rooting for him to fail. And today, Owitz is still around, but he doesn't have anything like the cloud he used to have. Ron Meyer is still running Universal. Uh, we were talking about before, it's a couple decades, which is 21 a weird, years, it's a six different owners, run. and he just signed a new contract. So he's essentially one of the most powerful people in, in the entertainment world, full stop. Yes, but you know, it's different. It, it, that's what makes studying these two so interesting because they really have different orthodoxies, they have different value systems, they have different ways of keeping score. Ron would probably derive more psychic income from working out in a kind of Henry Kissinger-esque way, you know, solving a problem between two people who were, you know, used to be friends and then they got into a business deal and it went south and he would come in and fix it all up or, you know, getting an actor, not that he would get involved in day-to-day stuff, but if there's a big star that, you know, Universal wanted for a movie and the star had said no to everybody and then Ron swooped in and was able to talk to... Those are the... the that's the th- thing that gets that's him going. That's the thing that that really matters to Ron Meyer. You know, I was saying, I was looking at this stuff and saying, you know, these people, if you you have a certain lens, you think, boy, these guys look pretty petty and and mean-spirited. But you've got so many quotes from their clients. These stories seem almost unbelievable. At one point, Ron Meyer's leaving CAA and he's calling up his various clients, telling him he's leaving, and they all start crying. It's about their agent leaving. Uh, Sylvester Stallone and and Ron Meyer are both sobbing on the phone together. It's hard to believe. Uh, And then David Letterman, who is not the kind of guy you imagine would wax on about how great his agent is, is comparing Ovitz to the guys who saved his life through open-heart surgery. What are we missing from the outside when when we see – you're used to watching someone go on stage at the Oscars and thank their agent. seems like a pro forma thing to do. What is the thing that the agent does for an actor or a director that is, is so important to them other than get them money? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I have to say it's something that drove me. And as you can tell from the book, you know, I was really interested in that because it's so easy for us to think of it as, you know, this like 35-year-old, you know, in a black suit or a black power suit or something like that if it's a woman. And, you know, they get 10% of the money and they, you know, bang the table and they scream and they yell. I was really struck by the fact that for a lot of these stars, you can't really trust a lot of people. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody wants something from you. And so when people were talking about when Billy Murray or David Letterman talk about Ovitz or when... Jessica Lange and Whoopi Goldberg and so many others talk about Ron Meyer. They're talking about somebody who they they trusted and had like an intimate relationship with. This was their touchstone. This is somebody they spoke to numerous times a day. And you have to be able to trust them. And it becomes, you know, so important. You know, the idea that like Nicole Kidman didn't want to do the hours. Sarah Jessica Parker didn't want to do Sex in the City. Cher talked about 
how Ron Meyer tricked her into doing Moonstruck. They, you know, Nicole and Cher won Academy Awards for those roles. And if it wasn't for their agents talking them into it, I mean, Ron literally tricked Cher into taking that role of Moonstruck, which is, you know, probably one of the defining roles of her career. Uh, Kevin Huvane, you know, basically forced Sarah Jessica Parker to do Sex in the City. So it's it's kind of like understanding that larger role that an agent plays in these people's lives. And, you know, I see it too with CA represents, you know, the, the Derek Jeters of the world and the J.J. Watts of the world. And it manifests itself in many different ways. So it's different than a lawyer, different than a manager, different than a rabbi or a priest. It's some combination of all these things, right? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think that there were many clients who said to me, you know, Jim, I have a, probably have a closer relationship with my agent than I do with my spouse. I think that's a little creepy, but, 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 uh, well, but, I you mean, know. taking the obvious yeah. out of the equation, but I mean, in terms of being able to really have a candid conversation about your strengths and your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, whether or not you're psychologically prepared to do something, you know, um, when Whoopi Goldberg told me this amazing story about when she freaked out on the set of a movie and she was stayed in her trailer and nobody could get her out and she called Ron and Ron came down to the trailer on the set and said, you know, you got to get out. You, you got to go and do this. You know, if not, they're going to sue you and you're going to be poor and you're not. But he, he also, he talked to her because she trusted him. He was able to talk her back on to work. So, and they get paid for it. And speaking of money, we're going to take a quick break here for one second. Talk to one of our fabulous sponsors. Today's show was brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company that everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. Videoblocks is always adding new content, so it stays fresh. And as a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. Yep, you heard that right. Whether you're working on personal or commercial projects, you pay zero royalties and keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only, less than 10 bucks a month. You can get your subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash recode for this exclusive offer. Today's show is also brought to you by Mac Weldon. Since you are listening to this podcast, you know that Mac Weldon makes the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you will ever wear. I am wearing the socks right now. That's why I sound so comfortable. I pay for these things with my own money. That is the single best endorsement you can get from me, Peter Kafka. They're also made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that will eliminate odor. I smell great right now as I'm speaking these words to you. They're easy to buy and check out for yourself. You go to MacWeldon.com, you get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. People actually do this, and they actually thank me for doing it. Um, you go to MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you don't like this stuff, they will send you your money back. You keep it. It's great. 20% off is good for you. It's good for me because I get to keep doing this. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Enjoy your socks. Back here with Jim Miller, author of Powerhouse, many fine other books. Let's talk a little bit about the, the landscape for CAA today and, and what Hollywood looks like in general. I said at the beginning, you know, the core thing these guys do is, is package together various artists, directors, et cetera, 
for a movie or a TV show, very often a TV show, that thing makes a lot of money, the agents make money. As the entertainment business is starting to shift, is their business shifting as well? Fundamentally. Because, look, the studios are making fewer movies. Um, the TV equation from a financial point of view has changed. And so what I think they're, they're looking at now is additional revenue streams and really making sure that they are part of the conversation of the content world. Now, the, the agencies in some ways, Peter, are ground zero for the, this whole battle of content. We've spent a lot of years figuring out distribution channels and ways to incentivize and monetize creative thought, right? Like Netflix and all these other things. And it's, but at the end of the day now, like what's going to go on these channels? How are these pipes going to be filled? And so both CA and WMEIMG have taken on private equity partners. And the reason why that's significant is, let's say 10 years ago, CA used to have a meeting with some tech startup and they may have been talking about doing like a show on their, you know, on the air or whatever it was going to be. CA would walk out of their office and say, boy, that sounds like a pretty cool idea. Now CA walks out of the office and say, hey, you know what? We want to buy a piece of you or we want to invest in you, or we want to be They can do that with their private equity money. Yes. I mean, when these private equity guys put money into CAA and William Morris, a lot of head-scratching, because the thing about the agency business, traditionally it's a service business, right? You're, you're all, you're all your employees and their money walk away from the office every day, it's, and it's, traditionally it's hard to make money selling those companies. When a private equity guy invests in you, the idea is after three, four, or five years, he's going to either turn around and sell it to someone else or sell it to the public. So both these guys are sort of headed toward an IPO, it looks like. How do you convince sophisticated investors in the public markets that these things are more than just talent agencies? You have to buy other stuff, right? That seems like what they're doing now. Yeah, I, well, I got, I got kind of fascinated by that, and I was able to justify my two years of business school because uh, there's kind of some stuff that I, we talked about back then. But the truth is, first of all, there's a stickiness to the agency business, which is worth noting. You know, CA right now, they're getting checks from the Blake Edwards estate when he directed 10 with Bo Derek. Which is a movie from the 1970s. Which is a for movie from the 1970s. So, but there's getting, less of that going on there, right? There's less of, in your book, you say, you know, the ER is going to make them tens of millions of dollars Jurassic a year Park, for years. It's, but there's less of those going on. And, and, and fundamentally, right, you either get those deals or you don't. And CAA was the giant agency, and now they're less so. And it seems like if you're from the outside, you're saying, all right, that's, you have a, a, an income stream that's going to go on for a long time, but it's not the same as a business where you're making new products that I can own a piece of. I guess so. I mean, I think that there are still, when you have a piece of an, as an agency in a franchise like Jurassic Park, I mean, J.J. Abrams, their client, you know, Star Wars, I mean, that is the gift that keeps going. And if you look at some of the numbers, it's enough to make you a Bolshevik because it will continue for literally decades. Right. But these guys do, I mean, you make a deal with J.J. Abrams when he does Star Wars and you own a piece of that business in perpetuity. But if J.J. Abrams leaves your agency and goes to a rival, now you're done working with them. You'll, you'll have the old deals, but you won't have the new ones. I understand, but you're still... Right. So, so the, it seems like what these guys are trying to do is say, all right, in addition to being in the J.J. Abrams business and the Tom Cruise business and the Blake Edwards business, we're going to start buying assets that we're going to actually own or we're going to finance stuff. Uh, William Morris just spent $4 billion for the UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship. They're going to actually own their own sports franchise. Um, you see CAA making deals of that size and that ambition? CA has a majority ownership owned by TPG in San Francisco. TPG has about $75 billion under asset. It's a phenomenally successful private equity firm. I think that they have a slightly different approach. 
then WME IMG and Silver Lake, who's the controlling partner for uh, that agency. I think that the TPG approach is a bit more measured. They are looking for big headlines. They're a little bit more concerned about debt. And, you know, when WME bought IMG at 2.35 or $2.4 billion, there's a lot of debt that came on. They were eight times leveraged at the time. That's a, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to go to sleep at night, you know, but. Same model, though, right, that you're saying that William Morris is doing more deals, doing bigger deals, taking bigger swings, and there's bigger downside as well. Right? I so think fundamentally, so. they're both sort of saying, we're going to be more than just talent agents. We're going to do other stuff. We're going to own other things. Right. But I think it's just important to note, even parenthetically, that they're not following the same playbook. So does the fact that, that we're moving towards a world where Netflix is now a channel, right, and Netflix is a movie studio, Amazon is a movie studio, does that fundamentally change the business these guys are in, or they still get paid to put together a show for Amazon or put together a show for Netflix the same way they would have for Warner Brothers or NBC? I mean, you know, the economics are, are slightly different. They are different, the kinds of fees that you get and the kind of back ends. But at the end of the day, I think what CA and WME and a lot of the agencies in Hollywood have, have decided is that they'll take as many swings as they can. The job is to get your clients working. And so if you have a client and he hasn't sold, you know, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, they haven't sold the show to the network, you know, that project maybe dies. And, or, you know, you go to HBO. Now it's, there's just so many more options and they're, you know, and they're dedicated to doing that. Near the end of your book, you, you assemble a bunch of quotes from rival agents saying, you know, people used to be really afraid of CAA. Now they're not. Um, now you can go ahead and poach their clients. You can bring their agents over. You're not afraid to leave CAA anymore. What is the long story of, of CAA's rise and really long run and now decline to some degree tell you about Hollywood, if anything? Well, first of all, I, I did some of that toward the end of the book because I thought it was important for readers who are outside Hollywood and the day-to-day to understand just what the competitive landscape looks like there. And it's tough. It is the deep end of the pool. It's um, very, very competitive. It's a lot of alpha personalities. And by the way, it gets personal. So I think that even people in Hollywood were kind of stunned in terms of the excerpt that ran to the Hollywood Reporter because they maybe hadn't seen it all put together like that in one narrative about just how competitive things are now. You know, Ovitz and... Stuff people talk privately about, I just don't say it publicly. Right. But the point is, though, now they're not afraid to say it. Right. Ovitz was feared, you know, and I think CA was feared a lot during those times. I don't think that that exists now. Speaking of fear, what, what, tell me about the process of assembling a book like this. Is that the third one of these oral histories you've done? Do you go in from the beginning and go to CAA, go to ESPN, go to Lauren Michaels' SNL and say, I'm creating this book. Can I have access to everyone? Or do you just start reporting it out and at some point say, oh, by the way, I'm midway through this book. Do you want to participate? No, not midway. What I don't do, though, is CAA said, well, why didn't you ask us before you signed the contract? Because, you know, they really didn't want to cooperate at the beginning. And I said, because I, I, that I wasn't going to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about doing a book about you guys. So would you cooperate? So then I can, you know. Go sell it. No. In fact, ESPN didn't allow me on campus for the first year. Uh, the beginning of this process with CA was pretty, pretty tough. The oral history itself, people I'm sure had done it prior to you. But you're now well-known for this format. And then this format in general seems to have really sprouted up. Uh, there was a couple of years, and I think it's still going on, where online where 
everyone, GQ magazine, but also sites like Uproxx were doing the oral history of whatever, a movie. BuzzFeed did one about a day on the internet when traffic was really high. What do you think it is about the oral history that people enjoy as a format? Well, the reason why I'm attracted to it is because, uh, and no hubris on my part, I love to write, but I don't think there's any way to really capture the singular voices, the, the distinct personalities of these people, you know, just by writing narrative, just by writing prose. And so I think it's really important in the case of Saturday Night Live, you know, to hear Danny Aykroyd or Bill Murray or, you know, uh, Tina Fey or anybody talk in their own words. It's a Rorschach test. It's an X-ray. It, it, it reveals their sensibilities, their orthodoxies, their even the rhythm of their speech and the way that they frame things. Um, I just think that, look, I, I love to listen. And I think that one of the great pleasures of doing a book like this is to you know, hear directly from these people. It's much harder than just sitting down and writing a book. I would have, this book took three and a half years and- What makes it harder? Because in some ways, like it seems like it's easier, right? You're on your tape recorder, you get someone to transcribe it, you pull up the good quotes, maybe you do something smart, like you, you take one person's quote that says X and then you get the opposite quote from the other guy and it's a cool little juxtaposition. Seems relatively easy. Try it sometime. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that there's a lot of complexities to it, including- well, first of all, let's let's not even talk about the fact about access, getting uh-huh. to these people, yeah. and then getting to these people and telling them that they're going to be quoted. Then getting to these people, telling them they're going to be quoted, and telling them that it's not even going to be like one line. Right. We're going to use this whole thing. Like, I mean, you know, there's just... So I have literally serenaded and begged and pleaded many, many times. You know, a lot of people... You know, we'll say something off the record, which does me no good. They'll say something on background, which does me even, you know, perhaps it's not as bad as off the record, but it's say, still Say, look, I can't use this. It doesn't do right. me any good. It's and, an oral uh, history. Yeah. You got to talk so, into the microphone on the record. Right. And then there's the whole thing, too, about I was trying to interview this actress, and she wrote me a very nice note. She said, I, I love your books, and there's I don't know what you do to get people to uh, say what they say, but I'm not going to talk to you. I know I'll regret it. I don't think people regret what they say, but it's very raw. And the oral history format is very raw. So when you spend all this time on a book, um, not only do you get to write the book, but afterwards you're plugged into this this community of people. I've noticed in particular in the last year or so, you've been writing a lot about ESPN. They've been going through a lot of turmoil. I've written about it as well. But I think you're really probably the best source person on, on ESPN right now. Oh, thank you. Curious where you think they are today in terms of – like the, the narrative for them has gone from – TV's having problems, but ESPN remains dominant. They're unchallenged. People love sports. They must have sports. And last year, that narrative really turned. And now it's, oh, they're not going to make enough money to... Sports rights are going to get more expensive, but they're losing subscribers. They have real problems. Talent's leaving. What's your take? I mean, look, we can't ignore the fact that, you know, close to 7 million households disappeared. And at $6 a head, that's, you know, pretty soon that adds up to real money. And I think that Disney was very transparent with Wall Street about their concerns. This is a year ago. Yeah. Freaked everyone out. Their concerns about the diminishing revenue. And all of a sudden, the Big Ten conference deal comes up, and lo and behold, there's ESPN with, you know, deep pockets. So they're fearless. They believe in their model. They are exploring other kinds of ways. They do very well in digital, but at the end of the day, 
the dual revenue stream that has existed for ESPN since subscriber the early, fees and advertising, right? Since 1983, basically when they kind of engineered this reversal, you know, on the whole cable ecosystem. I mean, has been in place, has been incredibly profitable. And while the margins are not what it used to be, I still think that they have they have a pretty big moat in terms of versus their competition. And and the beauty of the sports rights is this. You and I have no idea. What, what's your favorite TV show right now? It's a good question. Probably something on Netflix. Let's say love on Netflix. Okay. So three years from now, I don't know. Who knows if love will be on. I'll tell you one thing, though. The Rose Bowl is going to be on, and we're going to be watching because it's the Rose Bowl, and it's live sports, and you don't know. Right. So And that's that- the ESPN argument. And then the counter is... Yeah, but less people are going to watch it and less people are going to pay for it. And it turns out once people have the ability to watch Netflix or Amazon or HBO now, that audience is going to get even smaller because there's many more choices. I just, my son just graduated from college. I can't believe I'm old enough to have a son graduate from college. <laughs> and we were moving him into his department. And, uh, you know, I said naively, you know, what time is the cable guy coming? And he looked at me like I was, you know, we're not, we're not doing cable. You know, he bought Apple TV and he's streaming everything and uh, that's it. I mean, that's, you know, that's a fundamental paradigm shift within right. a generation. Right. And for a while, the cable guy said, yeah, but you know what? All right. So for he's not getting cable today, but in five years he will. And then five years came and their numbers didn't increase. And then specifically within ESPN, you were also one of the guys with one of the best handles on, on what happened there at, uh, when Bill Simmons left. Basically, he was fired publicly in the New York Times by John Skipper. Do you think you know what actually happened why Skipper pushed him out and whether it was Skipper doing it? I try, I wrote a series of uh, columns for Vanity Fair on it, and I think, uh, and I was really pleased to get Skipper to, uh, the one time he wanted to talk on the record about it, mm-hmm. you know, he spoke about it. I think that, look, Bill Simmons was an outlier in many ways for ESPN, both geographically, financially, but also in a way creatively, because he required and wanted a sense of autonomy that they're not used to giving. One of the operating principles of ESPN has always been that those four initials are more important than any one individual. Right, the anchors come and go. The anchors can come and go. Uh, Chris Berman may be an exception to the rule. But, you know, Bill had engineered a lot of success in digital. He was part of the brain trust that gave birth to the 30 for 30 documentary series and, of course, with Grantland. So I think that you know, technically Skipper didn't fire him. He announced that they weren't going to be re-signing, redoing yeah. the new contract. He preemptively announced that he was no longer but I think working that, there. Yeah, but I think hitting the delete key on Grantland was a pretty big matzo ball, as Jerry Seinfeld would say. You know, it sent shockwaves through not, not only Bristol and ESPN, but I think other companies that said, okay, hold on a second. Where's our ROI here? You know, what is the value proposition of having something like Grantland? Because... For a while there, Skipper was not really looking at it as a moneymaker, even in its best kind of way. It was never going to be a huge moneymaker. But then I think when it starts to be disruptive to the culture, which is what Skipper thought, and it was, it became toxic for the ESPN cultures, then I think that that's when Pushkin shows. You write about big institutions that are made up of colorful characters. And then for a while, when, when Bill was going off on his own, there was a series of these people doing th- things on their own and digitally. There was a lot of discussion about, oh, you know what? We're in an era now where people can create their own brand and they can go off on their own and they can move their brand and their Twitter following off on their own. And this is what the internet allows. But it seems like a lot of your interest, and, and I think most of the money still comes from very big other networks, platforms, 
big institutions. Do you see that changing anytime? I think it all depends on your popularity, right? Because we would be crazy to think that what Bill Simmons has done since he left ESPN is possible or you know, even a winning strategy for 99% of the people that do what he right. does. You know, I mean, he was able to engineer with his podcast, you know, more advertising revenue or more revenue for himself than ESPN was even making on it when he was at ESPN. So I think that, you know, it sounds simplistic in a way, Peter, but at the end of the day, if you have an incredibly successful personal brand, you know, and your content is prized and envied and desired by a lot of people, then yes, you can get downright entrepreneurial. But the flip, right, was that he he achieved that success with ESPN. It's like the musicians who who become huge and then want to go create their own label. They got huge generally because they were signed to Warner Music or Sony Music or Universal Music, or that was part of it. They generally what you generally don't see yet people who come up solely on their own, create success solely on their own, and sort of plot their own their own destiny. Right. I think that you know it's like one of those. Um, Mike Myers, Linda Richmond, Coffee Talk, you know, segments on SNL. It's like Bill Simmons would have been just as big as he was without ESPN. Discuss. You know, yeah. I mean, so if we're really going to trace the pedigree of Bill's popularity and success, did his ESPN years contribute to that? I mean, were they much more of, of the proverbial wind at his back than it would have been on his own? I think there's no question about it. I think it was really important to Bill's growth financially and brand-wise, for him to be at ESPN. Would he have been Bill Simmons without it? I still think yes. It just may not have been at these numbers. SNL, ESPN, CAA. We've got a trend going on here. What's book number four? It's got to be an acronym, right? Well, why not? I'm not sure. I'm in a kind of a, a deep thought about uh, three different candidates. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I definitely... Uh, I hope to decide soon. I get kind of antsy. What's the model? I mean, is, is it that same idea? Look, I want to have a big thing that has a large cast of characters. Do you say, no, no, I want to do a different kind of book entirely? Well, I think, look, CA was a departure in the sense that it wasn't well known. I mean, people in Kansas, I don't mean to be geocentric here, but I think a lot of people outside Hollywood, let's say, no I just came SNL from Minnesota. ESPN. A few people know who, what CAA is. Yeah, Minnesota. but not as many as would know. So I think I kind of made a little slight adjustment in the strategy in terms of let's discover something together. Let's discover what these three initials are rather than you know these three initials. Now let's take you behind the scenes. So, you know, there's there's a couple different ways to go with the next one. All right, so you're going to let us know what the next book is. Absolutely. Soon. In the meantime, give yourself one plug. Where should we buy Powerhouse? www.powerhousebook.com. Yeah, not, not through Amazon? Uh, well, you don't care Amazon, where they buy. I, well, there's a lot of independent booksellers, so that website gives you the choice of whether you want to uh, contribute to the Bezos Fund or whether or not there's uh, independent bookstores that you'd like to do. So You get paid either way. Level playing field. On behalf of my three children, yes. Excellent. Jim Miller, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you guys enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, and I really do like it, you can find more on our website. You can find more on iTunes. You can find more on Google Play, wherever you listen to fine <laughs> podcasts. Kara Swisher has another fine podcast. Uh, so does Lauren Good on Too Embarrassed to Ask. You should check those out. And thanks to our sponsors, Videoblocks and Mac Weldon. Thanks to Digital Media, the folks who distribute this stuff and help sell ads for it and help provide it to you for free. I'm back next week with another great guest. See you then. <laughs>